0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York,
1: I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events
0: shaping your world. Russia's munitions on the battlefield in Ukraine have met with mixed success. But one thing in Vladimir Putin's arsenal seems sure to kill the weaponization of energy we look at sobering mortality estimates ahead of Europe's fuel-deprived winter.
1: And Clement Jama runs Ghana's first microbrewery. His beer, brewed with locally grown sorghum, is delicious, but he's finding it difficult to grow his enterprise, a problem he shares with small businesses throughout his country.
0: First up, though, Today, France's President Emmanuel Macron heads to America for a state visit that starts tomorrow. There will be pomp and parades, bonhomie and backslapping. American presidents have long repeated a mantra about the historical ties of two nations defined by their revolutions.
2: Uh, and I think it's important for us to understand France is our oldest ally. France is America's first and oldest ally. A lot of people don't know that.
0: A lot of people know that. But that's not to say that relations have always been smooth. A diplomatic spat, a war in Europe, a tricky set of trade considerations. Presidents Biden and Macron have a lot to work through in between photo ops.
3: It's the first state visit that Joe Biden has hosted of any president.
0: Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief.
3: And for Emmanuel Macron, it's his second state visit because he was hosted by Donald Trump back in 2018. And that's the very first time, therefore, that a French president in modern times will have been treated to two state visits to America. So I think the symbol is important, the favor that America is granting France is important and Macron will get the full honours. He'll have the state banquet at the White House. There will be full military honours when he arrives. And there will be a lot of show of warm feeling between the two countries. But this does come at a time when America has been trying very hard to patch up what has been difficult relations with France.
0: Why have those relations been difficult?
3: Just over a year ago, the AUKUS security arrangement was unveiled between the US, Britain and Australia. Today, we join our
1: nations in a next generation partnership,
2: creating a new trilateral defence partnership known as AUKUS. Our nations will update and enhance our shared ability to take on the threats of the 21st century, just as we did in the 20th century, together together.
3: And this was a trilateral security pact which involved technology sharing, but it also torpedoed a submarine contract that France had with Australia to build submarines for that country, and also France's Indo-Pacific strategy was very much undermined by this deal. The French were absolutely furious at the time. C'est vraiment en bon français euh, un coup dans le dos. They felt that they had been stabbed in the back. Et je suis aujourd'hui euh, en colère that this deal had been kept quiet. It was actually strategically dangerous, that it was going to increase the chance of nuclear conflict with China.
2: AUKUS deal was very bad news for France, but not just for France, because I think it's a very bad news for credibility. And, and
3: Macron was very blunt about it when he was asked if he thought Scott Morrison, who was prime minister of Australia at the time, had lied to him. Macron was very clear about that.
2: I don't think, I know.
3: So it didn't look good for diplomacy. There was a lot of bad feeling in Paris. Macron actually pulled back the French ambassadors, both from Washington and from Canberra. And since then, America has worked really hard to try and patch up the relationship. Biden and Macron met in Rome a year ago. And I think that the state visit has to be seen in the context of America making a big effort to make sure that it has a good relationship with
0: France. And why does that relationship count so much for America right now?
3: Well, I think the main reason is the war in Ukraine. America needs Europe to remain united, and France, therefore, is a key ally in bringing others on side. The two countries didn't see eye to eye right at the start. If you think back to the beginning of the war in February, the Americans had been predicting this for months, and the French were not at all sure that Putin would really go to war. So there were quite different readings of the intelligence that the two countries were getting. But the views of the two countries have converged over time, I would say, and that they both, I think, now agree on where they stand. That is to say, very firm support for Ukraine, very firm stance in terms of sanctions against Russia, but also agreeing that they do want to do everything to avoid escalation and that there is a sense that both America and France are prepared to say out loud that at some point negotiations are going to have to take place to find a diplomatic solution to end this war. And in particular, I think in that context, the Americans appreciate the fact that Macron speaks to Putin from time to time. It's just controversial in some people's eyes in Europe, but I think that the Americans feel that that is a useful diplomatic channel.
0: So it sounds as if they're already all on the same page then?
3: Well, I wouldn't say on every issue. I think that there was some surprise in Washington at Macron's comment at the G20 meeting in Indonesia when he said that China could play a mediating role in Ukraine, la Chine peut jouer à nos côtés, j'en suis convaincu, un rôle de médiation plus important dans les prochains mois. I think that the Americans are hoping that this doesn't mean China could become a peacekeeper between Russia and Ukraine, and I think that that's not what Macron meant. I think what he was trying to get at, and this is where the Americans can come on board, is that Xi Jinping is a way to try to exert international pressure on Putin if Xi Jinping is prepared to have that kind of conversation with Putin to try and make him cease his hostilities or further hostilities. Because America and Europe both want that to happen. But also from America's point of view, they need European support in their own efforts to constrain China in the Indo-Pacific. And in that respect, France is an important ally for the Americans.
0: So why, though, is France such an important player in the Indo-Pacific region then?
3: Well, I think it's sometimes not quite understood how far France is present in the Indo-Pacific region. It has territories in both the Indian and the Pacific Oceans, and it actually has over a million French citizens living in this region. So it is considered a powerhouse in the region. It has a naval presence there regularly. And at the same time, France in the European Union is the only real military power or heavyweight power. Now that Britain has left the European Union, Germany is trying to build up its military presence, but it's a long way from being anywhere close to France. And therefore, America has to deal with France if it's going to talk about defence and security, both in Europe, but also much further away. And that is not to say that France is always an easy partner to deal with. It can be quite sort of headstrong, and it can irritate allies from time to time. But the fact is that it does have global reach. It is prepared to mount expeditionary military operations, and those make it a very useful interlocutor for the Americans.
0: So plenty to chew over there, but that's not all that, that Mr. Biden and Mr. Macron have to talk about, clearly.
3: No, one of the most pressing issues is actually going to be commercial, so not defence and security at all. Right now, the Europeans are quite angry at the consequences of the American Inflation Reduction Act and its decision to massively subsidise green industry. And that really worries the Europeans because they feel that their own companies are now at risk. They're already Suffering from soaring energy prices as a fallout from the Ukraine war and sanctions, and that this is going to make things even more difficult. So, that's one issue. And the other issue, of course, is the export of American gas. Europeans are very happy to have all this liquefied natural gas arriving in Europe. They need it because the gas taps have been cut off from Russia, but they're not so happy at the prices that the Americans are charging for it. So, you do have these big commercial trade issues that are going to be on the table, they will be discussed. And that is going to make it testing, even for two countries that consider themselves each other's oldest ally.
0: So you think real business will get done here? This is a state visit that is more than just pageantry.
3: Well, there's obviously the whole pageantry is part of it. The symbolism, the state dinner, the banquet at the White House. Macron's also going to New Orleans at the end of his trip to Washington, where he'll be celebrating French and American ties over architecture and culture. There'll be plenty of that. But I think that Macron also is someone who likes to get things done and do some sort of deals and to talk seriously about a whole host of other issues. They may not be tangible agreements signed at the end of them, but he wants to talk about climate. He wants to talk about Africa. He wants to talk about the global south. And there are lots of other issues that he will want to raise with the Biden administration and, and really try and move forward on that perhaps aren't that visible during a state visit, but they are very much part of what this is all
0: about. And all of that is for the purpose of pushing his own agenda, or is some of that playing to the audience back home?
3: Well, I mean, part of it, of course, is that Macron, I think, is rather enjoying being on the world stage. He has been away and out of France a lot in recent weeks, and international diplomacy is very much occupying a lot of his time. But it's not surprising. He's a second-term president. He has got issues at home. It's not easy. He doesn't have a majority in parliament. And I think that what you're looking at possibly is a French president who is going to be increasingly keen on diplomatic affairs as a way of both complementing, but also possibly getting away from the problems that he has at home.
0: Thanks very much for joining us, Sophie.
3: Oh, It's a pleasure to speak to you, Jason. It always is.
0: Russia's invasion is sure to be top of the agenda for Mr. Biden and Mr. Macron when they meet. But the fighting on the ground this winter will not be the only source of suffering in Ukraine or beyond. Vladimir Putin has turned natural gas supplies, or the absence of them, into a weapon against all of Europe. Before the war, Russia supplied up to half of the continent's gas imports. Through the summer, though, Mr. Putin cut the flow of the Nord Stream pipeline to Europe, in August, he shut it off altogether. European gas prices again reach near record highs on Monday. EU countries are digesting the implications of Russia's decision to switch off flows down the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany, announced late on Friday. The sharp rise in prices that followed will mean a chillier and a more lethal winter for many.
4: Although heat waves get more press in their capacity to kill people, In Europe, it's actually cold temperatures that are normally deadlier than hot ones. So in the winter months, between December and February, around 20% more Europeans die per week than do in the summer, between June and August. And the colder it is, the more deadly the winter tends to be.
0: Ainsley Johnston is a data journalist at The Economist.
4: Putin's weaponization of natural gas has led to dramatic rises in the costs of heating this winter. And this will cause many people to heat their homes less than they otherwise would have done. If trends from previous years are any indication, this could lead to a significant rise in deaths.
0: And how significant are we talking?
4: Well, now market fuel prices have declined from their previous peaks, which were very high. But the prices for residential European gas and electricity have still rocketed. So for gas, it's currently around 144% above the baseline between 2000 and 2019. And for electricity, it's around 78% higher. So obviously these costs pale in comparison with the horror that we've seen in Ukraine, but they still matter. It means that a lot of particularly poor people across Europe will struggle to heat their homes this winter. The exact mortality totals caused by the fuel price increase will depend on a lot of factors. And one of those is the temperature. If we have a mild winter, The increase in deaths might be limited to only around 30,000 above the historical average. But a really harsh winter could see around 330,000 extra lives lost.
0: And that's simply from exposure to those low temperatures?
4: It's a bit more subtle than that. In modern Europe, very few people die of hypothermia or pure exposure to the cold. Really, the cold causes deaths in a lot of different ways. So one of them is by increasing the spread of viruses. So when we spend more time inside because of the cold weather, viruses can spread much quicker. Cold temperatures also allow viruses to stay alive for longer outside of a host body. But as well as that, the cold also causes our immune systems not to work as well. And so this increases our susceptibility to catching these viruses and maybe even dying of them. And as well as that, the cold also impacts the cardiovascular system. It causes blood to thicken and blood pressure to increase, which increases the risk of strokes and heart attacks. And finally, the cold can also cause irritation and problems with breathing. And all of these contribute to the rise in death rates over the winter months.
0: So you said if historical trends hold, but we have a a fairly ahistorical spike in energy costs, do we have a sense for, for how things are going to play out in that situation?
4: That's what we've been looking at here at The Economist. In recent decades, energy prices have had a modest impact on winter mortality, but these prices have only gone up and down within a very narrow band. Now prices are well outside of their historical range. And as a result, it's hard to know whether the trends that we saw in the historic data will really hold when we extrapolate forward and use the new prices now. So for example, in Italy, Electricity costs are up nearly 200% since 2020, and simply taking these numbers and applying the historical patterns to them, we get extremely high estimates of this year's death rate.
0: But still though, if that's what the numbers show for the past, why, why would that extrapolation not work? Why shouldn't we expect considerably higher death estimates?
4: Well, I think it does make sense that we should predict that death rates are going to increase this year, but it's just exactly how much. So, for example, we don't know whether people might change their behavior this year in a way that they haven't done in the past that might affect the death rate in some way. There's also other factors that we haven't considered. So the first is government subsidies. Although we've taken account of subsidies that are levied for the whole population, A lot of countries have introduced things like cash transfer schemes for poorer people or discounts on energy bills that are just specifically for some segment of the population. Also, COVID could play a big role in a way that's quite hard to predict. So COVID cases could spike this winter and the virus could be more severe when people are living in cold homes. Alternatively, COVID could actually decrease the number of deaths this winter purely because the virus has already killed a lot of the old and frail people that might be most vulnerable to the cold. All of this uncertainty makes it quite hard to predict the mortality in Europe this winter with any kind of firm confidence. So
0: sharp estimates, clearly very hard to come by, but what, what seems clear is that Vladimir Putin's weaponization of energy is, is working to put pressure well beyond
4: Ukraine. Exactly. I think the most firm conclusion from our analysis is that if the patterns of the last decade do continue to apply this winter, Russia's energy weapon will be very deadly. So with energy prices near their current levels, around 150,000 more people would die in a typical winter than if those costs returned to their pre-COVID levels.
0: So regardless of the precise numbers, it's obviously a huge amount of suffering that this weaponization of energy is causing.
4: Exactly. One conclusion that we can definitely draw from our analysis is that the number of people who might die this winter in Europe because of the high energy prices is likely higher than the number of people who've already died because of the fighting in Ukraine, around 30,000 for each side. All of that is really going to test European countries' commitment to supporting Ukraine over the winter. But although a lot of European countries like Germany and Italy are going to suffer huge losses of life this winter caused by the rising energy prices, the country that's going to suffer most from the cold is probably Ukraine, where Russian forces have targeted infrastructure, which is going to stop Ukrainians from heating their homes this winter.
0: Thanks very much for joining us, Aisley.
4: Thank you, Jason.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited
4: more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: So I arrived at Inland Beverages, which is a brewery in Ghana, to meet a man named Clement Jamma. He's a wise cracking and seemingly successful owner of the brewery
1: ninety
2: percent, ninety-two percent water. And his beer is is tangy and fresh. I can attest to, from direct experience. And it, and it has a special ingredient, which is locally grown sorghum. He produces really a, a strong amber draft.
1: Kenley Salmon is an Africa correspondent at The Economist.
2: And Mr. Jammer seems to be doing well. He's got a great product and his customers are clamoring for more. And like any ambitious entrepreneur, uh, he wants to expand to meet demand. Uh, he's worked for some of Ghana's biggest brewers, foreigners love his concoctions as well. He's also got the line that his microbrewery was Ghana's very first. And his use of sorghum stems actually from some other work he did on a multi-million dollar government and UN-backed project, which was designed to reduce poverty by encouraging Ghanaian farmers to grow the grain. To supply to brewers. But despite all of this, uh, his plans for expansion are stalling. Uh, And like many other small businesses in sub-Saharan Africa, he really faces a, a host of serious problems.
1: Tell us about those problems, Kinley. What are entrepreneurs in the region dealing with?
2: The biggest in surveys time and again across sub-Saharan Africa is access to finance. A World Bank study uh, found that in sub-Saharan Africa, about a quarter of firms cited access to finance, but that was far more than others. And in Ghana, surveys suggested that it's about half of firms that point to access to finance as their biggest obstacle. In Ghana, things are getting rapidly worse for firms on this account. The government is now basically broke. Uh, It's in talks with the IMF. For a bailout, the central bank has been increasing its main interest rate because inflation is surging. It's now up to 24.5%, the interest rate that is. And borrowing for commercial loans are, of course, even higher still. So getting access to finance in Ghana is, is just extraordinarily difficult.
1: Are those the only issues these small businesses face?
2: Sadly, not the only ones. Um, I mean, corruption is another very real problem. Mr. jammer said, you know, there are very few options for small business owners like him looking for finance. If you can't or won't pay the bribe, you need political connections then to get a loan. And if you don't have those, you need to find private investors, perhaps, that might take a share of the company in, in exchange for investing in it. But those, of course, can be hard to find and in his case, led him to conversations with some rather unsavory characters. Uh, and then, of course, if none of those options work out, well, then you're just right out of luck that there are really very few other options.
1: So, Kinley, what does that mean? Where does that leave business owners in that position?
2: Well, in Mr. Jarrett's case, the lack of investment basically means his brewery can't grow and it's stuck just producing at small batches, which is you know, much harder to make money out of because there are, of course, scale economies that matter. And so he, you know, still works as a consultant to government projects, teaching people how to use sorghum to brew beer rather than doing it himself. Ironically, instead of building a productive business, it turns out he's better off doing a form of aid work, you know, helping uh, sort of dream up clever schemes rather than doing it directly. And that in a way tells us about the travails of other small businesses in Africa. You know, many of them struggle to grow and drive the economy and that drives people to quit uh, and hampers growth right across the economy, a lose lose, both for the people who might grow the, the inputs like sorghum in this case, and the consumer who might want to enjoy that refreshing beer that I got a taste of on my visit.
1: That's bleak, Kinley. Is any of this likely to change?
2: Uh it is a bit bleak, unfortunately. And and I think in the short run, things are going to remain very difficult for small businessmen like Mr. jama I mean, particularly in Ghana, where there's a crunch in the economy, access to finance isn't going to miraculously surge back very quickly. Uh, and in other countries, which are also facing kind of rising interest rates and shrinking government budgets for supporting business, that's also going to be challenging. You know, of course, there are some countries in sub-Saharan Africa that are in better shape economically, and, and businesses there may find it a bit easier to access those kind of funds. You know, and there is, of course, growing interest in Africa more generally as a place for business and investment, notwithstanding the sort of most recent troubles. And so hopefully, you know, taking a longer view, all of this should change, but it's not going to happen overnight, unfortunately.
1: All right, Kinley, thanks very much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me on the program.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at
1: And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.